Welcome once again to Beyond Texas. It has been a while, and I apologize for my long silence. I have a good reason for the delay. I had COVID. A light bout of COVID, it's true, but it did last a week, and it ruined my voice for even longer. It's returned now at about 90%, so here we go. I was wondering the other day about what time period in history saw the greatest human progress in the shortest time. What made for the greatest leaps in civilization in terms of healthier, wealthier lives for most people? I think we have seen most of such leaps since the invention of the printing press. Harnessing electricity was certainly one. Inoculations, antibiotics, the computer revolution, and, of course, the Internet which we're going to talk about today, how the Internet has created a paradigm shift in advancement and freedom. But at the same time, many governments are seeking to regulate those freedoms. It seems that a population that is too free is dangerous. So as I was thinking about all these things, I I asked my friend and world-renowned researcher, Elad Yamtov, what he thought about my thoughts. And he said to me, he said, you raised two interesting questions First, with regards to when humans made the greatest progress, I think one should measure progress relative to the initial state of things. Sanitation probably saved more lives than antibiotics because the former started with people being sicker than when antibiotics were invented. It's also such a multifaceted question. What do each one of us think of as the most important attributes of the human condition? Is it happiness, health, wealth, knowledge, or freedom? Perhaps it is easier to highlight several times when significant progress was made. It is also so interesting that progress is not always an intentional feat. Fleming was looking for a way to defeat microbes. On the other hand, so many inventions made for military purposes were repurposed for everyday use. And as to your second question, like everything in life, there's no free lunch. More freedom carries the risk of anarchy, but also spawns new thought and human progress. It's such a paradox that the Internet, which has enabled us to learn and achieve more, has allowed governments to keep tabs on people. The Internet makes it possible to hear more diverse voices, but some of those voices are ones that we dislike or are downright illegal, and so governments do need to regulate the more extreme cases. Internet optimists thought that the Internet would only bring good by bringing people together, but people have a tendency to find ways to misuse technology. So after this little exchange with Elad Yomtov, I said to him, why don't you join me on my podcast, Beyond Texas, and let's talk about these things, about how the Internet has affected life, the universe, and everything, for good or ill. And he said, happy to do it. And we're going to talk to him in just a minute. I first met Elad a few years ago when I interviewed him for NPR stations about his new book at the time, Crowdsourcing Health, How What You Do on the Internet Will Improve Medicine published by MIT Press. Elad is a senior researcher at Microsoft, mining big data in an effort to teach us what the Internet can teach us from the data we all produce in surfing the net. He has access to the data produced by the Bing search engine, which is his goldmine of data. He doesn't look at what individuals are doing. He looks at big data composites of millions of data points, what the collective are doing. 
Elad has lectured all over the world on the subject of big data. In addition to being a senior researcher at Microsoft, he is also a visiting scientist at Technion in Israel, where he lives. Elad has just joined us. Elad, glad you agreed to have a good long conversation about these things, but I'm going to jump right in. One of the things you did, one of the studies you undertook was on heart attacks and what the internet can teach us about how people cope with heart attacks in the real world. Exactly. So, so that's a good example. Um, most people won't have an, a heart attack and, and the ones who will won't have, won't go on to have multiple heart attacks. And so if you go into an emergency room and talk to the people who had a heart attack and ask them, what did you do just prior to when you had a heart attack? It's very difficult for them to make that generalization and say, oh, whenever I go to this restaurant or whenever I run a marathon, I get a heart attack. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. But if we look at all the people who we uh, identify in some way as having had a heart attack, and then we go back in time and ask, what are the commonalities in their queries? Maybe we can make some uh, conclusion about the kinds of things that happen just before people have a heart attack. And that's the kind of strength that, uh, that our data brings. Or think about something else. Um, um, a, a reporter in the New York Times, when COVID started, he uh, started looking at the correlation between the number of people asking about different symptoms in different states and the number of COVID cases in those states. And one of the things he found out that the loss of the sense of smell and taste was uh, more people were asking about it in those states that had more COVID cases than in the states that had fewer. And that suggested what we now know is true, that uh, COVID is associated with the loss of smell and taste in, in many cases. Well, I know you did some uh, significant looking into all the data you were getting from COVID from around the world. What else did you learn about COVID, about inoculations, et cetera, uh, through big data? So early on in the pandemic, we realized that it takes uh, between a week and two weeks between when people started experiencing symptoms of COVID and when they are actually registered uh, with health authorities as having COVID. Um, and that's between a week and two weeks, it's dependent uh, on which country people come from. And it's because, you know, people experience, they start coughing, they look at online, then it takes them another day or two to uh, go for uh, a test, and the test takes perhaps another day until it comes back. And so if you add all these things together, you get to between a week and two weeks. So once we realize that, we started looking at where in uh, a country do people start, is there a spike in people asking about these symptoms of COVID? And that enabled us to give an alert to health authorities a week before they could uh, start seeing these cases. So they could utilize their, their resources better by having access to, to our reports. Or um, in another piece of work, when people asked about these symptoms of COVID, we would offer them uh, help through an ad. The ad said something like, you know, if, if you're worried about these symptoms, you can click here and we'll give you some more information. And when they clicked on the ad, they got access to a chat bot 
basically a, a service that you can interact with uh, natural language and it will ask you about your symptoms and your uh, background illnesses. And at the end, it told them either that they should go to the hospital or they can stay at home. Mm -hmm. And we use that information to do two things. One, uh, to tune our system to focus on people who needed to get to the emergency room rather than just uh, everybody who had symptoms. And the other is it could help us predict how many people would actually be hospitalized, in this case in Israel, nine days ahead of time because we saw how many people were actually referred or had symptoms that were consistent in, in having to go to the emergency room based on, on our systems. How fascinating. Um, so that's a, 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 it's similar to the, the heart attack example in the sense that um, it's a, a way to sense what's happening in the environment without actually having to have people know the association between different things. Well, here in the States, one of the correlations that's been interesting ex post facto is that the areas that were resistant to inoculations and the areas that had the proliferation of conspiracy theories, for instance, around the inoculations being dangerous and all, uh, had higher incidence of COVID death. Did you have any data to corroborate that finding? I did not look into that specifically. I know that there have been um, quite a few people suggesting that association, but I think it, it might be a little too early to draw conclusions. Um, on the one hand, yes, I do see the politicization of uh, COVID, and it's not just in the U.S. I mean, again, I live in Israel, and, and here there was a fascinating study which showed a correlation between the rates of vaccination in different uh, cities before and after our change of government. And it showed that trust in the government had a very significant effect. So if you voted for for the current government, you were more likely to get vaccinated than um, if the once the government changed and a different government came into power. So I think we have to uh, wait a little more and then look at the studies. Right now, studies are starting to come out looking at uh, the effect of what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, which mm -hmm. is a fancy name for things like uh, lockdown and mask wearing. Obviously, there is an effect, but measuring the size of the effect and what it uh, what it correlates with other than just being there, uh, I think we need to wait a little bit more before we can state uh, with any confidence. Well, here in the States, one of the things that I think is going to happen if we ever have another epidemic is that it's going to be horrifically difficult to manage because people are now set in their ways. They're going to say, no, I'm not taking that. I'm not wearing a mask. You're not going to cut into my liberties. I'm a free human being on this planet, and I'll do what I want. And uh, and there's a lot of political endorsement of that notion. So it's, it's going to be very hard to do what we did before requiring inoculations of people and uh, I don't think that's going to fly anymore. And so an epidemic will be, I think, much more difficult to manage. It'll just be a voluntary system. Uh, unfortunately, I tend to agree that it's very difficult to uh, for the next pandemic. Um, the bright side is perhaps we have learned a little bit better how to uh, provide the right information to people in the way 
in a way that, that won't make them antagonistic to it. So mm-hmm. in a way that they will be willing to uh, read the information and understand it. Um, and maybe that will help. I, I'm not sure, but I think that's one of the things we need to focus on in preparation for the next pandemic. Well, let's talk about the Internet revolution in general. I've been just... Uh, I mean, really, there are no words for <laughs> for my response to the age of the internet because it was so unpredictable in in my life. You know, we had I started teaching years ago with chalk <laughs> and a chalkboard, and actually physically entered grades into a paper grade book. And so I started in the you know the, the horse and buggy days. And uh, the, our idea yeah. of, of high technology was an opaque projector where you could project a page from a book onto a screen, and that was incredible. And they were, those things were huge. You know, they were the size of a small car. <laughs> they were just enormous. Have you ever seen one, an opaque projector? Yeah, of yeah. I mean, I, I remember how heavy they were. Yeah, you're very heavy. Well, well, you're a good deal, good deal younger than I am, so I don't know if – I didn't know if you would remember them or if they'd been around in your days. But in any case, I went through that, and, and then I remember when I, I went to Africa on uh, Fulbright in the 90s, and before I left, I remember somebody said to me, are you going to have access to the information superhighway? And, uh, you know, that was the early name that people used, at least here in the States, the information superhighway. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I don't know what that is. And, and they explained it to me, and I said, "Well, I doubt it. If we don't have it here, I don't think we're going to have it there in in uh, the back country of Africa." And and they didn't. But uh, in any case, it was when I came back that all of a sudden there was this explosion of technology and computers linked, and and uh, and I just was completely blown away by the advances that happened in two or three years and uh, its effect on education, medicine, everything. So what, from your perspective, uh, one of the things I remember you said was that the internet showed great promise to bring the world together. And uh, in many ways that has not come true. In fact, it's been the opposite. It has torn us apart. Yeah. So, so I think it's obvious to everybody that these days, we have at our fingertips so much more information than what we could ever have before. Or perhaps you would have to go to a significantly large library to get the the information you wanted, and now it's at our fingertips. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think, like most things in life, there's a, uh, a balance of good and bad. So on the one hand, yes, it does bring us together in the sense that I can find people with similar hobbies to mine, even if there are only perhaps a few dozens like us in the world. And that's a good thing because now we can um, share the insights or the the um, love of our hobbies to, together. On the other hand, that same exact phenomena uh, leads to what we call filter bubbles, where you only look at what your friends who are like-minded read, and therefore you are completely sure that the entire world thinks in that way, or if there is somebody who thinks differently, they're they're probably wrong or uh, malicious. And so that same effect, just as an example, has a, a very positive side to it, but also quite a negative one as well. And um, the uh, you can see the same effect in, in many other places. If you think about, say, 
in my field, there's what we call um, large language models. These are, um, I'm very much simplifying it here, but these are models that learn from text on the internet um, the, about language and about uh, the information that's conveyed in language. And you can give them, uh, in one of the applications, you can give them perhaps the beginning of a sentence and they will complete the sentence and perhaps even write a few more sentences like that. That um, is quite a wonderful thing if you try it. Mm -hmm. The negative aspect to that is that not all the texts that he learns from on the internet are quite savory, and so you get a lot of racism and a lot of mm -hmm. um, chauvinism and sexism. And once people realize that, they said, whoa, you know, <laughs> we're not sure that this is such a good idea. And now there's a lot of work going into trying to remedy that, those kinds of things. So on the one hand, yes, it's wonderful to learn from uh, a very large variety of texts. On the other, you also see that there are some things that you don't really want to to know about or perhaps learn from. Well, you know, you introduced me to the book uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts. One of the points made in that book, and it's kind of frightening in a way, is that, that uh, no matter how perverted your perversion there's a, a group out there on the internet who will validate you as uh, not alone. You know, there are other people like you and therefore finding that out makes you feel okay with your weird ideas. And uh, I had never thought exactly. of that before until I read that book and <laughs> he had an interesting way of putting it. Yes, that's true. Um, the other aspect of that, I mean, we should say that book talks about uh, learning about human sexuality from people's behavior online. Mm. And of course, learning about sexuality in what we may call traditional means or in the real world is pretty difficult because people don't want to share the, that side of their life uh, with researchers. And online, it is much easier because you, you don't actually need to know who the people are. Um, but there are many other examples like that where the fact that uh, people... Um, reflect their life online or perhaps sometimes live their life online uh, creates these data that uh, enable us to learn about things which we couldn't do before. And I'll, I'll give you one example from uh, a work of one of my colleagues, Adam Forney. Um, it's a fun example, I think, because uh, it, it speaks really about how uh, often people are active online in ways which are interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what he looks at were um, women who queried for their, their week of pregnancy. Once he knew that at a certain date they were at a certain week of pregnancy, he could look at all their queries before and after. Again, they're completely anonymous, mm -hmm. but he could learn about the interests of these women over the course of the pregnancy and also afterwards. And he has this beautiful chart in his paper showing how women start by being interested in a pregnancy test and a faint line on a pregnancy test going through baby showers and such, and until uh, you get to uh, the newborn. And it's beautiful, in, I think, because it shows you how uh, you can really uh, know about the interests of people throughout uh, a pregnancy, in this case, without having to have them uh, work hard to give you those data and also uh, significantly shortening the, the time that it takes to do this kind of research. 
Well, what did he find were there major concerns or commonalities that were perhaps surprising? I don't remember the the all of the, the findings that he had in that paper, but one of the things that when I show this chart in my talks, one of the things that he found was that uh, fresh pineapple was uh, spiking in interest uh, a few <laughs> days before birth. And I did not know this, but this is supposed to uh, induce birth. Uh, and the, that's one of the, the kinds of things that you learn when you start looking at what people do. How interesting. Yeah. How about pineapple pizza? Does that go together with that? <laughs> <laughs> that I know. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm curious, as you are an Internet scholar and you have children, uh, how do you manage or what, what, do you, what are your rules about Internet use in your home for your kids? Uh do you have or do you have any well we 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 have uh, rules but perhaps not the the ones that would come as uh, the obvious ones uh-huh. um i think one of the the perhaps one of the bigger problems that the internet has uh caused is the fact that it's now easy for children and teenagers to stay in their room or in their house and not meet other people face to face. And this of course was exacerbated by COVID. Um, And Jonathan Haidt wrote several books about this, but um, that together with the fact that you can lock yourself in your own filter bubble, I think has um, is is very likely to have had uh, quite, significant adverse effects on, on young people. So what we try to do is um, to get our children to go outside, to meet friends, to uh, hang out with friends mm-hmm. in the physical world rather yeah. than just virtual in the virtual world. I can't say we're always successful yes, far from it, it's tough. but uh, that's what we try to do. The, the other thing that I wanted to mention is, of course, they hear about the kinds of things that we uh that I study uh, at home. And you know, one of the great pleasures um, was having uh, my children read the books that I've written and, mm-hmm. uh, and come back and ask questions and argue about some of the things <laughs> that I wrote. And so they are now, I think, equipped to look at um, things they read online in a way that's more critical than perhaps other young children in their age. So, when they perhaps see some kind of uh, an association that's stated, or when they see something that uh, comes from a very small group of people, they will ask, you know, how common is this? Or is this an association? Or is there some kind of a causal link between the two? And um, to my pleasure, I can say that I've seen this happening a few times. And um, it's it's nice to to know that there are... um, savvy enough to ask the question. Even if they don't always have the answers, they know that perhaps this is not uh, what it seems to be and they should ask about it. Well, to make them good critical thinkers is uh, a gift that will serve them beautifully all their lives. You, you can't ask for more than that. Teenagers are putting off getting driver's licenses till much later in my generation, we were chomping at the bit, you know, to get our, get our driver's license when we were 14 or 15 to get a special permit. 
I wanted to get it early because the driving was freedom. And driving was our means of getting to our friend's house to where we could hang out. And these kids, because they're connected online, they, they don't have any big rush to get a driver's license. They, they, I mean, I have an 18-year-old right now, and I'm pushing and pushing him to get a driver's license because I want someone to go to the store for me so I don't have to do it all the time. <laughs> it's a personal interest, yeah. you know. Yeah, we have the same thing. Um, my my eight, soon-to-be 18-year-old um, didn't want to learn driving until one day he complained about the, the fact that he had to wait for the school bus um, at the end of the, the school day, even though he had quite a few hours to uh, spend at the library because there was no several of the, the lessons were canceled that day and said, you know, there's a car in the driveway. If you had a license, that day you started learning. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Here here we are 8,000 miles apart having the same conversation with our kids. So it's nice to know there's commonality <laughs> across cultures. Uh, now, the other yeah. – what what's the future of, of the net? You know, people used to talk about uh, – Oh, we're going to have holograms, for instance, and there's going to be all kinds of cool stuff in the, in the future. And so, uh, what, what do you know from where you sit? Uh, if I knew the future, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking. I would be active, yeah. active investing somewhere. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, but what I think, uh, is happening is that we are learning, um, to, that, that there's a, that there's a new kind of uh, status quo or new balance that we're we're moving into, and we'll have to learn how to live in that space. So uh, we talked about the benefits and the, the drawbacks of having all this information. We're still trying to learn what's the right thing. And you see a lot of efforts in different uh, countries and by different people. Uh, what's the right thing to do? Is it to perhaps censor some information? Mm. Is it to augment that information with other uh, uh, information that helps people make sense of it. All these different things are still shows that we're still trying to learn what's the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it'll probably take us a good few years until we realize what, um, where we should be doing or what we should be doing um, to make the most of what we have and, and, reduce the the adverse effect of of that kind of uh, uh data um how it will look like i honestly don't know <laughs> <laughs> well you know I, th I think a lot of people are focused on elon musk and his takeover of twitter and wondering can he really uh create a freer a freer speech in the marketplace of ideas uh, and simultaneously manage the kind of negative, damaging, fallacious information that is dangerous. I mean, how do you how do you balance that? Obviously, he feels that Twitter has tipped too far to the left in terms of censoring ideas on the right, and he wants a more balanced approach to this. It's hard to engineer that, isn't it? It is extremely difficult. I mean, I wish him all the best because I think it's very important to be able to do this, but... I, I know people working in this area, and it's very, very difficult. And sometimes it's, it's conflicting because mm -hmm. someone's truth might be somebody else's lie. And mm -hmm. how do you balance between these two things? I think some of his ideas, at least the ones that were stated publicly, are great. Others, I don't know if they will work. Um, and 
The third factor that uh, I'm sure he's thought about is that there's also regulation in different countries, specifically, for example, in Europe, um, that he will also have to take into account. So it's not that he can do whatever he wants. There's also the, the regulatory environment. Well, here in the States, of course, the, we have the First Amendment, and I know other countries have similar things. And the, one of the theories of the First Amendment is the wide open marketplace of ideas that you let everybody have their say and the marketplace will take care of itself. You know, that the poor ideas will be crushed and, uh, and good ideas and ethical ideas will rise to the top and dominate. Um, but, um, in practice, whenever that's been tried, that hasn't been the case. You know, that you, you get a, a kind of chaos and people yeah, with the biggest bullhorn, they win, you know. <laughs> Exactly. So, so today the biggest bullhorn is uh, perhaps determined by a person's uh, size of their purse or the the amount of money that they're willing to spend on something, because you can buy uh, people and services that will amplify your message, even though they're not authentically humans who are who are providing that message. And so it's it's muddier than just saying the best ideas will rise to the top. Also, as we've seen during the pandemic, in some cases, uh, ideas might be later on uh, crowded out by better ideas. But currently, these ideas are causing real health damage to mm -hmm. the health of other individuals. And so what do you do in that case? Yeah, then it, again, I'll give you, you know, the, the contrary example, which is that we now know that some ideas which were suppressed or censored early in the pandemic, such as uh, the discussion about the origin of the pandemic, um, perhaps were over suppressed because we thought that they were uh, malicious mm -hmm. or because we thought that they were wrong. And in retrospect, perhaps there is some substance to them. Mm -hmm. So we really have to be very careful. And I personally tend to be more on the side of free speech, but I, I recognize very, very clearly that there is a limit to uh, what can and cannot be said. Of course, you know, the example is... Uh, uh, screaming fire in the theater. Yeah, the um, one of the things that's uh, being pushed here in U.S. law is the idea of making it easier to sue people, particularly media libel, uh, because they're they're pretty well mm -hmm. protected by this policy that's called uh, absence of malice. That they can say what they want, but you have to prove that they said whatever they said with malicious intent to hurt you specifically in order for you to successfully sue them. And it's it's a high bar to reach, and therefore it gives the media incredible power uh, and protection for saying whatever they want to say. And uh, so the idea is that we, you know, you would rein in this uh, tendency to push malicious information uh, if they were more, if, they, if it was easier to sue them. And so that's one possible direction uh, for the future. But my, it makes it really difficult in in uh, social media because to what extent are is the is Twitter responsible for people sharing uh, malicious information on the site? Is Twitter therefore a partner in sharing this? So far, they're not. They're protected. Yeah. At least yeah. I understand it. But also the fact that. Uh, there is no uh, world governance of the internet. So mm -hmm. if uh, somebody tweets about somebody in the U.S., but they're located in, say, uh, Europe, or mm -hmm. they're located somewhere which 
you cannot locate them. They, mm-hmm. they hide their traces. Mm-hmm. What is the legal theory that you're supposed to use in that case? Yeah. Are you going to wait until the person appears in the U.S.? <laughs> Are you going to sue them in absentia? Mm-hmm. What do you do? And I think that's part of the problem, that we're still learning what's mm-hmm. the right thing to do in those cases. During the pandemic, and actually before, I began first seeing information about Russian bot farms and Chinese bot farms who were just uh, instigating fights between Democrats and Republicans to stir the pot to create chaos in America. And it, it astounded me that that there would be such a thing. But then when I thought it through, I thought, of course, of course they would do that. <laughs> they would, you know, yeah. it's kind of like the kids on the playground standing on the side of the scrum of the crowd and egging on the fighters and you got to take that from him, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, mm-hmm. so is, is there legitimacy to that? New, it's not a new idea. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's not a new idea. I mean, uh, if, there's a, uh, a very interesting book called the world was going our way, which is a, a summary of uh, the leak of the KGB archives from the cold war era. Mm-hmm. And he talks quite a lot about how the KGB would pay uh, a reporter in a country to write some kind of uh, um, false report, which would then cite it in other media. Uh, and, and again, it was false information. It was, uh, uh, it was spread maliciously. Mm-hmm. And it's, in some cases, highly successfully so. What's the name of the book? Uh, the World Was Going Our Way. I'll have to look at that. One more thing I wanted to ask you about, since you're an expert on this sort of thing. Uh, you know, people throw around the, wor- the word algorithm a great deal, but I'm not sure most people understand what it is and how it functions. Uh, can you explain algorithm in relation to the Internet, social media, etc.? Algorithm is, uh, broadly speaking, a set of instructions for a computer on how to do things. Um, today, a lot of the talk about algorithms is about a specific kind of algorithm, which is an algorithm that learns from examples. And so, for example, uh, you you would give the computer a set of images and you would tell them which images have uh, a house in them and which do not. And the algorithm would learn to separate between images where you would have a house and, and the other images. Now, so that's one kind of an algorithm. But there are so many algorithms now that uh, are around us, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, I have an Android phone, when I walk into a restaurant, th- and then afterwards Google will ask me, what was my experience in that restaurant? Mm-hmm. Now, how did it know that I was there? It's through an algorithm that figures out that if I was at a specific location, then I was probably at that restaurant. And usually they're pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, I could give you many other examples that, of those algorithms that we encounter in our daily life. Oh, I get so tired of being asked for my opinion about every little thing I do. <laughs> God. <laughs> well, you know, we go for the mass, uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, you can ask a million people and maybe five will give you an answer. <laughs> means that you will still get a good number of responses. Still get the some. same thing goes for, you know, family email. Yeah, I was uh, almost sure wanted to get the same thing. I was on a customer service call that I made the other day and you know that as soon as I called in they have this after this is over you, would you agree to take a survey about your experience at the call center and 
And I wanted to say, how about me give you a survey? Was I the kind of customer that you would like to have? <laughs> Was I clear in my communication? Uh, the Well, you know, when you talk about algorithm, one of the things that I've tried to do, because uh, my, my uh, understanding of algorithm is that whatever I click on creates a kind of profile of me, which gives me more of that sort of information sent my way. And so I thought, well, I could use this to my advantage, you know, to, to get things I really want delivered to me, information that I want. And so, for instance, one of the things I really like are, are beautiful impressionist paintings. And, you know, they're all over the Internet, of course. And so whenever I see one, I click on it and share it so that I'll get more of those sent my way. And, and I like it. You know, it, it's, it's, I see all kinds of things I would never otherwise see because the algorithm has been I've um, nurtured it in a sense to uh, work in my favor uh, as opposed to exactly. getting things, you know, sometimes you get yourself into an algorithm and you say, how do I get out of this? I don't want all this stuff. <laughs> and, and and the same thing happens in many other places. If you buy an Amazon, it will give you this, uh, you know, people who bought this book oh, also bought yeah. those other books. And I'm okay with and that. And that's very useful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, the thing that I'm not okay with is that I'll, I'll look at, uh, a Jeep, <laughs> one of Jeep Commander. What, what is the new one like? And then I start getting pop-ups for Jeep Commander everywhere I go. Even after I buy the Jeep Commander, I'm still getting the pop-ups and I want, I want to go to a place where I can say, look, I bought it. Okay. <laughs> Leave me alone. I've already <laughs> bought it. <laughs> There's no central clearinghouse yeah, so, for the so net, my, you know? Uh, yeah. So my my uh, advice in that case would be if you don't want to get all these follow up ads, use an anonymous browsing window, and then it won't happen. Oh, well, that's good advice. I I didn't. I never thought of that. I never thought that would work that way. Excellent advice. Maybe the most important yeah. thing you taught me today. What is uh? What are you working on now? You you know you have your your book on crowdsourcing health. I, so what are you working on? What's what are you um, working on now? Um, I always have quite a few projects in parallel, but uh, one of the main directions that we're looking at is using uh, data from search engines for diagnosis. And so the idea being that a search engine, if we look at the data that you generate when you're interacting with a search engine, in many cases, we can identify or suspect that you have a medical condition before you know you have it. And so mm. maybe we can get you to uh, medical care earlier than would otherwise happen. I'll give you an example. In certain gynecological cancers, uh, each one of the symptoms of these cancers is relatively benign. And so women get to uh, their physician pretty late in the course of the disease. And one of the things that we're trying to see is whether if we looked at women's queries over time, we could say, look, you, you asked about this symptom today and that symptom last month, maybe they're connected. And so go to your doctor and talk about these two things together. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, uh, one example. And we have quite a few medical conditions that we're looking at, ranging from uh, things like cancer to um to conditions which affect the, the nervous system, such as Parkinson's disease and stroke, 
Um, stroke is perhaps the most surprising one where we think that we can identify people who are at risk of a stroke uh, a few months ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, wow. and I, I caveat it because oh, yeah. I'm not, it, it hasn't been proven to a, uh, to a good enough uh, uh, standard, I think. But still, if it's, if it's true, then there is a fairly simple intervention that doctors can offer, which would help people uh, perhaps reduce the, the chance that they will have that stroke. Um, so that's kind of one of the, the main research directions that we're looking at. Um, the other is uh, slightly, um, well, me trying to uh, use the um, advertising systems that were developed to sell us more stuff in order to get people to uh, medical treatment earlier and better mm-hmm. uh, by by using the same mechanism to improve health. How interesting. That's a great idea and a, and a wonderful advancement if you can pull it off. Uh, you know, the great concern people have today, of course, is the, the big brother effect that uh, my data will not be private and I'll have uh, insurance companies looking at my data. But I wonder about the opposite. You know, for instance, uh, I can, if I want to, I can sign up. Uh, well, in fact, I, I belong to this right now. The There's a online system where uh, here in the States, the complexity of retirement, social security, et cetera, is, is very complex about when you retire and what your benefits would be and all that. So you can, uh, you know, join this uh, website and you can plug in all your information and it runs the data for you and tells you what your best options are. And I wonder if you couldn't do that for what you're talking about, where you put in your own information, you share it with someone on your own and, uh, and, and you know, there's a, a consistent audit going on on your health data and and provides you with the sort of thing you're talking about say listen you know we're getting a warning on your data that uh, you might want to check this out so it's funny that you should mention this because this is one of my dreams having a service which uh you will provide your data to the service and exactly like you said it Mm -hmm. it will uh alert you when something is happening Mm-hmm. And that way, it solves a lot of the ethical questions that arise with these kinds of, uh, say, characterize it by uh, saying it's a diagnosis by Internet. But mm-hmm. because you've decided to give your information, that solves a lot of these questions. Yes, and, it does. and you can decide, say, that you don't want to learn about some conditions, but you want to learn, know about others. Uh, you know, maybe you don't want to learn if you're at risk of Parkinson's because there's not a lot of, that you can do right now, but you do want to know about every other medical conditions. And it will send you an email when something mm-hmm. looks suspicious and mm-hmm. it doesn't really even have to tell you, uh, you know, this is mm-hmm. what you have. It all it needs to tell you is, mm-hmm. look, you've asked about these things or you behave you've been behaving differently in this way over the past few weeks, mm-hmm. maybe you should go to your uh, physician and talk to them. Yeah. Um, and so th- that's, that's one of my dream systems to do. I think that 23andMe has a kind of service like this, not exactly, because it isn't a, a contemporary monitoring. It's just a you can ask it to look at your DNA for health issues if you want to, and you have to pay an extra fee, but you can... Yeah. You can do that. And I guess they tell you, you got Huntington's disease, you know, you're going to die at 42. 
Yeah. I, I don't know what they tell you, but uh, in any case, uh, a version of it is kind of available, but not what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about would be a really big seller. Yeah. I, I, as I said, it's one of my dreams. Um, mm. I don't know if I'll do it or somebody else, but mm. um, I think it's feasible, completely feasible technologically. Uh, of course, one would have to go through all the regulatory hoops, uh, mm-hmm. which are there for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I, I wrote a paper with a leading ethicist here in Israel uh, thinking about these di- the different aspects of the ethics of these kinds of questions of uh, diagnosis. And um, w- probably the best option is really that system that, that you talked about. There are lesser uh, uh, options that we could use, but um, this is, is one of the best ones. Well, in the system that you have in mind, would it be a matter of, uh, I would give you my data every time I went to the doctor, I would upload my data, uh, whatever data points you wanted. And you would also monitor my searches so that you could see what uh, what I'm looking into to see how that connects to the other data points in the system. Yes, I think the, there are several ways that you could do it, but probably the easiest one is that you would have some kind of an app on your phone or some kind of a toolbar in your computer, which will monitor your behavior uh, online. Mm-hmm. And it won't even have to send the data anywhere. But um, whenever it needs to, it will tell you, you know, look, something's uh, going wrong here. Let's let's look into this. And maybe it will ask you for some additional information or maybe it will ask you, you know, um, have you not been sleeping properly? Or, or maybe there is something else that explains this kind of behavior that it's seen, mm-hmm. but uh, it will be on an ongoing basis. The idea that uh, your physician will ask you to upload your data is also possible, mm-hmm. but that means that your physician has to to know that they have to do this. So it um, raises all kinds of different questions. Mm-hmm. The problem with the service is that you have to opt opt into it. You have to know that it's there and register to it. Whereas if we do something like advertisements, then um, you don't have to opt in. Uh, and we can make it in a way that, on the one hand, empowers people to decide if they want this kind of advice. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it can be sent to a much larger number of people. So like everything in life, there's a mm-hmm. balance here. Yeah. Perhaps we can do both. I would do it. I would do it. If it, if it existed, what you're describing, I, I would do it. And I'd pay you know, 20 bucks a month or whatever, whatever fee would be reasonable to... I mean, what's more important than your health and, and, and early diagnosis? I mean, if you could, if you could know, yeah. I, I've got a great chance of avoiding a stroke. I mean, my, that's priceless. And the insurance companies would love it. Yeah. It, <laughs> in, in one of our uh, projects, every once in a while when they give these talks, people would uh, say, oh, but if people knew you we were doing this, they would never agree to give you their data. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, let's test this out. You know, I, I like testing out uh, things in, in, a, in a more empirical way. So we ran a study where we asked a thousand people around the world to give us their, their Internet data, their search data. And we said, look, we're going to approach a thousand people, but we only need data from a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. So tell us how much money you want for your data 
for uh, one of a number of purposes. So it was either to look at a serious medical condition or a more benign one uh, for personal gain, meaning we'll tell you if you have this condition or for something that's only societal gain, meaning we'll build a model that someday we'll be able to help people. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, if you're in the hundred people who asked for the least amount of money, then we'll come back to you and pay you that money and uh, get your data. And that's, kind of study is what's known in game theory as incentive compatible, meaning people will have to tell you their real evaluation for their data. What they didn't know was that half the people, we instead of asking how much money do you want us to pay you, we asked them, how much money would you pay us to take your data? <laughs> Turns out, something like 99% of the people are willing to uh, sell their data for something, uh, for an average of something like a hundred bucks, if I remember correctly, but over fifty percent were willing to sell it, to give us their data, and pay for us to take it because <laughs> they really see the value. Well, that's just what I said. I said I give you twenty bucks a month to, to take my data, and and exactly. but I'm also paying for the service of having it uh, professionally monitored. And so that's uh, that's why yeah, it's and, valuable. And people who experience, yeah, and pe- people who experienced or reported experiencing a significant medical event in the past year were willing to pay more because they know the value. Yes, and and I, I think that insurance companies would probably give you a reduced rate of some sort uh, if if you were monitoring your data this way. Uh, just because the kind of person who would do that is going to be uh, probably more careful in their life anyway, because they care. Yep. <laughs> so, well, that's part of the brave new world, and I, I imagine it, it will happen. Somebody needs to do it. Yes. Sure. Well, whenever you do it, I'm, I'm ready to invest. I'm ready to, to put some money into having it done for me and to invest in the idea of being, uh, being one that will make money for the future, no doubt. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your oh, insights you. as always. That's Beyond Texas for this week. Pick up Elad's book, Crowdsourcing Health. It's a fascinating read. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs>